Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is March 2021. This month we're going to be doing Anne Radcliffe. I don't know if we're going to have any guests to talk about the originator of the, what I like to call the Scooby-Doo ending, and gothic literature as we know it, and motherfucking Radcliffe. All right. Uh, except for that intro, uh, the rest of this should be family-friendly, and I hope you enjoy it. Remember, Black Clock Audio Tales, uh, Radio Free Oleander. You can also check out Articulate Warbling from time to time. Recording by Andrew Drinkwater in Madison, Wisconsin, November 15, 2007. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe, Volume 2, Chapter 5, Part A. Dark power with shuddering meek submitted thought. Be mine to read the visions old, which thy awakening bards have told. And, lest they meet my blasted view, hold each strange tale devoutly true. Collins, Ode to Fear Emily was recalled from a kind of slumber, into which she had at length sunk by a quick knocking at her chamber door. She started up in terror, for Montagny and Count Morano instantly came to her mind. But, having listened in silence for some time, and recognizing the voice of Annette, she rose and opened the door. "'What brings you hither so early?' said Emily, trembling excessively. She was unable to support herself, and sat down on the bed. "'Dear Mademoiselle,' said Annette, "'do not look so pale.' I am quite frightened to see you. Here is a fine bustle below stairs, all the servants running to and fro, and none of them fast enough. Here is a bustle, indeed, all of a sudden, and nobody knows for what. Who is below besides them? said Emily. Annette, do not trifle with me. Not for the world, mademoiselle. I would not trifle for the world. But one cannot help making one's remarks. And there is a signor, in such a bustle as I never saw him before. And he has sent me to tell you, ma'am, to get ready immediately. Good God, support me, cried Emily, almost fainting. Count Morano is below then? No, mademoiselle, he is not below that I know of, replied Annette. Only his excellenza sent me to desire you would get ready directly to leave Venice. But that the gondolas would be at the steps of the canal in a few minutes. But I must hurry back to my lady, who is just at her wit's end, and knows not which way to turn for haste. Explain, Annette, explain the meaning of all this before you go, said Emily, so overcome with surprise and timid hope that she had scarcely breath to speak. Nay, mademoiselle, that is more than I can do. I only know that the Signor is just come home in a very ill humor. That he has had us all called out of our beds and tells us we are all to leave Venice immediately. Is Count Morano to go with the Signor? said Emily. And whither are we going? I know neither, ma'am, for certain. But I heard Ludovico say something about going after we get to terra firma to the Signor's castle among some mountains that he talked of. The Apennine, said Emily eagerly. 
Oh, then I have little to hope. That is the very place, ma'am. But cheer up, and do not take it so much to heart. And think what a little time you have to get ready in, and how impatient the Signor is. Holy Saint Mark, I hear the oars on the canal, and now they come nearer, and now they are dashing at the steps below. It is the gondola, sure enough. Annette hastened from the room, and Emily prepared for this unexpected flight, as fast as her trembling hands would permit, not perceiving that any change in her situation could possibly be for the worse. She had scarcely thrown her books and clothes into her traveling trunk when, receiving a second summons, she went down to her aunt's dressing room where she found Montagny impatiently reproving his wife for delay. He went out soon after to give some further orders to his people, and Emily then inquired the occasion of this hasty journey. But her aunt appeared to be as ignorant as herself, and to undertake the journey with more reluctance. The family at length embarked, but neither Count Murano nor Cavini was of the party. Somewhat revived by observing this, Emily, when the gondolieri dashed their oars in the water and put off from the steps of the portico, felt like a criminal who receives a short reprieve. Her heart beat yet lighter when they emerged from the canal into the ocean, and lighter still when they skimmed past the walls of St. Mark without having stopped to take up Count Murano. The dawn now began to tint the horizon, and to break upon the shores of the Adriatic. Emily did not venture to ask any questions of Montigny, who sat for some time in gloomy silence, and then rolled himself up in his cloak as if to sleep, while Madame Montigny did the same. But Emily, who could not sleep, undrew one of the little curtains of the gondola and looked out upon the sea. The rising dawn now enlightened the mountain tops of Friuli, but their lower sides and the distant waves that rolled at their feet were still in deep shadow. Emily, sunk in tranquil melancholy, watched the strengthening light spreading upon the ocean, shooing successively Venice and her islets and the shores of Italy, along which boats with their pointed Latin sails began to move. The gondolieri were frequently hailed, at this early hour, by the market people as they glided towards Venice, and the lagoon soon displayed a gay scene of innumerable little barks passing from terra firma with provisions. Emily gave a last look to that splendid city, but her mind was then occupied by considering the probable events that awaited her in the scenes to which she was removing and with conjectures concerning the motive of this sudden journey. It appeared, upon calmer consideration, that Montigny was removing her to his secluded castle because he could there, with more probability of success, attempt to terrify her into obedience, or that, should its gloomy and sequestered scenes fail of this effect, her forced marriage with the Count could there be solemnized with the secrecy which was necessary to the honor of Montigny. The little spirit which this reprieve had recalled now began to fail, and when Emily reached the shore 
her mind had sunk into all its former depression. Montigny did not embark on the Brenta, but pursued his way in carriages across the country, towards the Apennine, during which journey his manner to Emily was so particularly severe that this alone would have confirmed her late conjecture, had any such confirmation been necessary. Her senses were now dead to the beautiful country through which she traveled. Sometimes she was compelled to smile at the naivete of Annette in her remarks on what she saw, and sometimes to sigh as a scene of peculiar beauty recalled Valancourt to her thoughts, who was indeed seldom absent from them, and of whom she could never hope to hear in the solitude to which she was hastening. At length, the travelers began to ascend among the Eponine, the immense pine forests which, at that period, overhung these mountains, and between which the road wound, excluded all view but of the cliffs aspiring above, except that, now and then, an opening through the dark woods allowed the eye a momentary glimpse of the country below. The gloom of these shades, their solitary silence, except when the breeze swept over their summits, the tremendous precipices of the mountains that came partially to the eye, each assisted to raise the solemnity of Emily's feelings into awe. She saw only images of gloomy grandeur or of dreadful sublimity around her. Other images, equally gloomy and equally terrible, gleamed on her imagination. She was going, she scarcely knew whither, under the dominion of a person from whose arbitrary disposition she had already suffered so much, to marry, perhaps, a man who possessed neither her affection or esteem, or to endure, beyond the hope of succor, whatever punishment revenge, and that Italian revenge, might dictate. The more she considered what might be the motive of the journey, the more she became convinced that it was for the purpose of concluding her nuptials with Count Morano with that secrecy which her resolute resistance had made necessary to the honor, if not the safety, of Montigny. From the deep solitudes into which she was emerging, and from the gloomy castle of which she had heard some mysterious hints, her sick heart recoiled in despair, and she experienced that, though her mind was already occupied by peculiar distress, it was still alive to the influence of new and local circumstance. Why else did she shudder at the idea of this desolate castle? As the travelers still ascended among the pine forests, steep rose over steep, the mountains seemed to multiply as they went, and what was the summit of one eminence proved to be only the base of another. At length, they reached a little plain where the drivers stopped to rest the mules, whence a scene of such extent and magnificence opened below as drew even from Madame Montigny a note of admiration. Emily lost, for a moment, her sorrows in the immensity of nature. Beyond the amphitheater of mountains that stretched below, whose tops appeared as numerous, almost, as the waves of the sea, and whose feet were concealed by the forests, 
extended the Campania of Italy, where cities and rivers and woods and all the glow of cultivation were mingled in gay confusion. The Adriatic bounded the horizon, into which the Po and the Brenta, after winding through the whole extent of the landscape, poured their fruitful waves. Emily gazed long on the splendors of the world she was quitting, of which the whole magnificence seemed thus given to her sight, only to increase her regret on leaving it. For her, Valancourt alone was in that world. To him alone her heart turned, and for him alone fell her bitter tears. From this sublime scene, the travelers continued to ascend among the pines, till they entered a narrow pass of the mountains, which shut out every feature of the distant country, and, in its stead, exhibited only tremendous crags, impending over the road, where no vestige of humanity, or even of vegetation, appeared, except here and there the trunk and scathed branches of an oak that hung nearly headlong from the rock, into which its strong roots had fastened. This pass, which led into the heart of the Apennine, at length opened today, and a scene of mountains stretched in long perspective, as wild as any the travelers had yet passed. Still vast pine forests hung upon their base, and crowned the ridgy precipice that rose perpendicularly from the vale, while, above, the rolling mists caught the sunbeams and touched their cliffs with all the magical coloring of light and shade. The scene seemed perpetually changing, and its features to assume new forms, as the winding road brought them to the eye in different attitudes while the shifting vapors, now partially concealing their minuter beauties, and now illuminating them with splendid tints, assisted the illusions of the sight. Though the deep valleys between these mountains were, for the most part, clothed with pines, sometimes an abrupt opening presented a perspective of only barren rocks, with a cataract flashing from their summit among broken cliffs, till its waters, reaching the bottom, foamed along with unceasing fury. And sometimes pastoral scenes exhibited their green delights in the narrow vales, smiling amid surrounding horror. There, herds and flocks of goats and sheep, browsing under the shade of hanging woods, and the shepherd's little cabin, reared on the margin of a clear stream, presented a sweet picture of repose. Wild and romantic as were these scenes, their character had far less of the sublime that had those of the Alps, which guard the entrance of Italy. Emily was often elevated, but seldom felt those emotions of indescribable awe which she had so continually experienced in her passage over the Alps. Towards the close of day, the road wound into a deep valley. Mountains whose shaggy steeps appeared to be inaccessible almost surrounded it. To the east, a vista opened, 
that exhibited the Apennine in their darkest horrors, and the long perspective of retiring summits rising over each other, their ridges clothed with pines, exhibited a stronger image of grandeur than any Emily had yet seen. The sun had just sunk below the top of the mountain she was descending, whose long shadow stretched athwart the valley, but his sloping rays, shooting through an opening of the cliffs, touched with a yellow gleam the summits of the forest that hung upon the opposite steeps and streamed in full splendor upon the towers and battlements of a castle that spread its extensive ramparts along the brow of a precipice above. The splendor of these illumined objects was heightened by the contrasted shade which involved the valley below. There, said Montigny, speaking for the first time in several hours, is Udolfo. Emily gazed with melancholy awe upon the castle, which she understood to be Montigny's. For, though it was now lighted up by the setting sun, the gothic greatness of its features and its moldering walls of dark gray stone rendered it a gloomy and sublime object. As she gazed, the light died away on its walls, leaving a melancholy purple tint, which spread deeper and deeper as the thin vapor crept up the mountain, while the battlements above were still tipped with splendor. From those, too, the rays soon faded, and the whole edifice was invested with the solemn duskiness of evening. Silent, lonely, and sublime, it seemed to stand the sovereign of the scene and to frown defiance on all who dared to invade its solitary reign. As the twilight deepened, its features became more awful in obscurity, and Emily continued to gaze till its clustering towers were alone seen rising over the tops of the woods beneath whose thick shade the carriages soon after began to ascend. The extent and darkness of these tall woods awakened terrific images in her mind, and she almost expected to see Banditi start up from under the trees. At length, the carriages emerged upon a heathy rock, and soon after reached the castle gates, where the deep tone of the portal bell, which was struck upon to give notice of their arrival, increased the fearful emotions that had assailed Emily. While they waited till the servant within should come to open the gates, she anxiously surveyed the edifice. But the gloom that overspread it allowed her to distinguish little more than a part of its outline with the massy walls of the ramparts, and to know that it was vast, ancient, and dreary. From the parts she saw, she judged of the heavy strength and extent of the whole. The gateway before her, leading into the courts, was of gigantic size, 
and was defended by two round towers crowned by overhanging turrets embattled where instead of banners now waved long grass and wild plants that had taken root among the moldering stones and which seemed to sigh as the breeze rolled past over the desolation around them. The towers were united by a curtain, pierced and embattled also, below which appeared the pointed arch of a huge portcullis surmounting the gates. From these, the walls of the ramparts extended to the other towers overlooking the precipice whose shattered outline, appearing on a gleam that lingered in the west, told of the ravages of war. Beyond these, all was lost in the obscurity of evening. While Emily gazed with awe upon the scene, footsteps were heard within the gates, and the undrawing of bolts after which an ancient servant of the castle appeared, forcing back the huge folds of the portal to admit his lord. As the carriage wheels rolled heavily under the portcullis, Emily's heart sunk, and she seemed as if she was going into her prison. The gloomy court into which she passed served to confirm the idea, and her imagination ever awake to circumstance, suggested even more terrors than her reason could justify. Another gate delivered them into the second court, grass-grown and more wild than the first, where, as she surveyed through the twilight its desolation, its lofty walls overtopped with briony moss and nightshade, and the embattled towers that rose above, long-suffering and murder came to her thoughts. One of those instantaneous and unaccountable convictions, which sometimes conquer even strong minds, impressed her with its horror. The sentiment was not diminished when she entered an extensive gothic hall, obscured by the gloom of evening, which a light, glimmering at a distance through a long perspective of arches, only rendered more striking. As the servant brought the lamp nearer, Partial gleams fell upon the pillars and the pointed arches, forming a strong contrast with their shadows that stretched along the pavement and the walls. The sudden journey of Montigny had prevented his people from making any other preparations for his reception than could be had in the short interval since the arrival of the servant who had been sent forward from Venice. And this, in some measure, may account for the air of extreme desolation that everywhere appeared. The servant who came to light Montagny bowed in silence, and the muscles of his countenance relaxed with no symptom of joy. Montagny noticed the salutation by a slight motion of his hand and passed on, while his lady, following, and looking round with a degree of surprise and discontent, where she seemed fearful of expressing, and Emily, surveying the extent and grandeur of the hall in timid wonder, approached a marble staircase. The arches here opened to a lofty vault, 
from the center of which hung a tripod lamp, which a servant was hastily lighting, and the rich fretwork of the roof, a corridor leading into several upper apartments, and a painted window, stretching nearly from the pavement to the ceiling of the hall, became gradually visible. Having crossed the foot of the staircase and passed through an anteroom, they entered a spacious apartment, whose walls, wainscoted with black larch wood, the growth of the neighboring mountains, were scarcely distinguishable from darkness itself. Bring more light, said Montagny as he entered. The servant, setting down his lamp, was withdrawing to obey him, when Madame Montagny, observing that the evening air of this mountainous region was cold, and that she should like a fire, Montagny ordered that wood might be brought. While he paced the room with thoughtful steps, and Madame Montagny sat silently on a couch at the upper end of it, waiting till the servant returned, Emily was observing the singular solemnity and desolation of the apartment. Viewed as it now was, by the glimmer of the single lamp, placed near a large Venetian mirror that duskily reflected the scene, with the tall figure of Montagny passing slowly along, his arms folded, and his countenance shaded by the plume that waved in his hat. From the contemplation of this scene, Emily's mind proceeded to the apprehension of what she might suffer in it, till the remembrance of Valancourt, far, far distant, came to her heart and softened it into sorrow. A heavy sigh escaped her, but trying to conceal her tears, she walked away to one of the high windows that opened upon the ramparts, below which spread the woods she had passed in her approach to the castle. But the nightshade sat deeply on the mountains beyond, and their indented outline alone could be faintly traced on the horizon where a red streak yet glimmered in the west. The valley between was sunk in darkness. The scene within, upon which Emily turned on the opening of the door, was scarcely less gloomy. The old servant, who had received them at the gates, now entered, bending under a load of pine branches, while two of Montagny's Venetian servants followed with lights. Your Excellenza is welcome to the castle, said the old man, as he raised himself from the hearth where he had laid the wood. It has been a lonely place a long while, but you will excuse it, Signor, knowing we had but short notice. It is near two years come next feast of St. Mark since your Excellenza was within these walls. You have a good memory, old Carlo, said Montagny. It is thereabout, and how hast thou contrived to live so long? A well a day, sir, with much ado. The cold winds that blow through the castle in winter are almost too much for me, and I thought sometimes of asking your Excellenza to let me leave the mountains and go down into the lowlands but I don't know how it is, 
I am loth to quit these old walls I have lived in so long. Well, how have you gone on in the castle since I left it? said Montani. Why, much as usual, signor. Only it wants a good deal of repairing. There is the north tower. Some of the bandlements have tumbled down, and had liked one day to have knocked my poor wife, God rest her soul, on the head. Your Excellenza must know. Well, but the repairs, interrupted Montani. I the repairs, said Carlo. A part of the roof of the great hall has fallen in, and all the winds from the mountains rushed through it last winter and whistled through the whole castle so that there was no keeping oneself warm, be where one would. There, my wife and I used to sit shivering over a great fire in one corner of the little hall, ready to die with cold, and... But there are no more repairs wanted, said Montani impatiently. Oh Lord, your Excellenza, yes. The wall of the rampart has tumbled down in three places. Then the stairs that lead to the west gallery have been a long time so bad that it is dangerous to go up them. And the passage leading to the great oak chamber that overhangs the north rampart. One night last winter, I ventured to go there myself and your Excellenza. Well, well, enough of this, said Montani with quickness. I will talk more with thee tomorrow. The fire was now lighted. Carlo swept the hearth, placed chairs, wiped the dust from a large marble table that stood near it, and then left the room. Montani and his family drew round the fire. Madame Montani made several attempts at conversation, but his sullen answers repulsed her while Emily sat endeavoring to acquire courage enough to speak to him. At length, in a tremulous voice, she said, May I ask, sir, the motive of this sudden journey? After a long pause, she recovered sufficient courage to repeat the question. It does not suit me to answer enquiries, said Montani nor does it become you to make them. Time may unfold them all, but I desire I may be no further harassed, and I recommend it to you to retire to your chamber and to endeavor to adopt a more rational conduct than that of yielding to fancies and to a sensibility which, to call it by the gentlest name, is only a weakness. Emily rose to withdraw, Good night, madame, said she to her aunt, with an assumed composure that could not disguise her emotion. Good night, my dear, said madame Montani, in a tone of kindness which her niece had never before heard from her, and the unexpected endearment brought tears to Emily's eyes. She curtsied to Montani and was retiring. But you do not know the way to your chamber, said her aunt. Montani called the servant, who waited in the ante-room, and bade him send Madame Montani's woman, with whom, in a few minutes, Emily withdrew. 
End of Volume 2, Chapter 5, Part A The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 2, Chapter 5, Part B Do you know which is my room? said she to Annette as they crossed the hall. Yes, I believe I do, Mademoiselle. But this is such a strange, rambling place. I have been lost in it already. They call it the double chamber, over the south rampart. I went up this great staircase to it. My lady's room is at the other end of the castle. Emily ascended the marble staircase and came to the corridor as they passed through which Annette resumed her chat. What a wild, lonely place this is, ma'am. I shall be quite frightened to live in it. How often and often I have wished myself in France again. I little thought, when I came with my lady to see the world, that I should ever be shut up in such a place as this, or I would never have left my own country. This way, mademoiselle, down this turning. I can almost believe in giants again, and such like, for this is just like one of their castles. And, some night or other, I suppose I shall see fairies too, hopping about in that great old hall that looks more like a church with its huge pillars than anything else. Yes, said Emily, smiling, and glad to escape from more spurious thought. If we come to the corridor about midnight and look down into the hall, we shall certainly see it illuminated with a thousand lamps and the fairies tripping in gay circles to the sound of delicious music. For it is in such places as this, you know, that they come to hold their revels. But I am afraid, Annette, that you will not be able to pay the necessary penance for such a sight. And if once they hear your voice, the whole scene will vanish in an instant. Oh, if you will bear me company, mademoiselle, I will come to the corridor this very night, and I promise you I will hold my tongue. It shall not be my fault if the show vanishes. But do you think they will come? I cannot promise that with certainty, but I will venture to say it will not be your fault if the enchantment should vanish. Well, mademoiselle, that is saying more than I expected of you, but I am not so much afraid of fairies as of ghosts, and they say there are a plentiful many about the castle. Now I should be frightened to death if I should chance to see any of them. But hush, mademoiselle, walk softly. I have thought several times something passed by me. Ridiculous, said Emily. You must not indulge such fancies. Oh, ma'am, they are not fancies, for aught I know. Benedetto says these dismal galleries and halls are fit for nothing but ghosts to live in, and I verily believe if I live long in them, I shall turn into one myself. I hope, said Emily, you will not suffer Signor Montagny to hear of these weak fears. They would highly displease him. What? You know then, mademoiselle, all about it, rejoined Annette. No, no, I know better than to do so. Though if the signor can sleep sound, nobody else in the castle has any right to lie awake, I am sure. Emily did not appear to notice this remark.
Down this passage, mademoiselle. This leads to a back staircase. Oh, if I see anything, I shall be frightened out of my wits. That will scarcely be possible, said Emily, smiling, as she followed the winding of the passage, which opened into another gallery. And then Annette, perceiving that she had missed her way, while she had been so eloquently haranguing on ghosts and fairies, wandered about through other passages and galleries, till, at length, frightened by their intricacies and desolation, she called aloud for assistance. But they were beyond the hearing of the servants, who were on the other side of the castle, and Emily now opened the door of a chamber on the left. Oh, do not go in there, mademoiselle said Annette. You will only lose yourself further. Bring the light forward, said Emily. We may possibly find our way through these rooms. Annette stood at the door in an attitude of hesitation, with the light held up to shew the chamber, but the feeble rays spread through not half of it. Why do you hesitate, said Emily. Let me see whither this room leads. Annette advanced reluctantly. It opened into a suite of spacious and ancient apartments, some of which were hung with tapestry, and others wainscoted with cedar and black larchwood. What furniture there was seemed to be almost as old as the rooms, and retained an appearance of grandeur, though covered with dust and dropping to pieces with the damps and with age. How cold these rooms are, mademoiselle, said Annette. Nobody has lived in them for many, many years, they say. Do let us go. They may open upon the great staircase, perhaps, said Emily, passing on till she came to a chamber hung with pictures, and took the light to examine that of a soldier on horseback in the field of battle. He was darting his spear upon a man, who lay under the feet of the horse, and who held up one hand in a supplicating attitude. The soldier, whose beaver was up, regarded him with a look of vengeance, and the countenance, with that expression, struck Emily as resembling Montagny. She shuddered and turned from it. Passing the light hastily over several other pictures, she came to one concealed by a veil of black silk, the singularity of the circumstance struck her, and she stopped before it. Wishing to remove the veil, and examine what could thus carefully be concealed, but somewhat wanting courage. Holy Virgin, what can this mean? exclaimed Annette. This is surely the picture they told me of at Venice. What picture? said Emily. Why, a picture... A picture, replied Annette, hesitatingly, but I never could make out exactly what it was about either. Remove the veil, Annette. What? I, Mademoiselle, I, not for the world. Emily, turning round, saw Annette's countenance grow pale. And pray, what have you heard of this picture to terrify you so, my good girl, said she. Nothing, mademoiselle. I've heard nothing. Only let us find our way out. 
certainly, but I wish first to examine the picture. Take the light, Annette, while I lift the veil. Annette took the light and immediately walked away with it, disregarding Emily's call to stay, who, not choosing to be left alone in the dark chamber, at length followed her. What is the reason of this, Annette? said Emily when she overtook her. What have you heard concerning that picture which makes you so unwilling to stay when I bid you? I don't know what is the reason, Mademoiselle, replied Annette, nor anything about the picture. Only I have heard there is something very dreadful belonging to it, and that it has been covered up in black ever since, and that nobody has looked at it for a great many years. And it somehow has to do with the owner of this castle before Signor Montigny came to the possession of it, and... Well, Annette, said Emily, smiling, I perceive it is as you say, that you know nothing about the picture. No, nothing, indeed, mademoiselle, for they made me promise never to tell, but... Well, rejoined Emily, who observed that she was struggling between her inclination to reveal a secret and her apprehension for the consequence. I will inquire no further. No, pray, ma'am, do not, lest you should tell all, interrupted Emily. Annette blushed, and Emily smiled, and they passed on to the extremity of this suite of apartments, and found themselves, after some further perplexity, once more at the top of the marble staircase where Annette left Emily while she went to call one of the servants of the castle to shew them to the chamber for which they had been seeking. While she was absent, Emily's thoughts returned to the picture. An unwillingness to tamper with the integrity of a servant had checked her enquiries on this subject, as well as concerning some alarming hints which Annette had dropped respecting Montigny. Though her curiosity was entirely awakened, and she had perceived that her questions might easily be answered, she was now, however, inclined to go back to the apartment and examine the picture. But the loneliness of the hour and of the place, with the melancholy silence that reigned around her, conspired with a certain degree of awe, excited by the mystery attending this picture, to prevent her. She determined, however, when the daylight should have reanimated her spirits, to go thither and remove the veil. As she leaned from the corridor over the staircase, and her eyes wandered round, she again observed, with wonder, the vast strength of the walls, now somewhat decayed, and the pillars of solid marble that rose from the hall and supported the roof. A servant now appeared with Annette, and conducted Emily to her chamber, which was in a remote part of the castle, and at the very end of the corridor from whence the suite of apartments opened, through which they had been wandering. The lonely aspect of her room made Emily unwilling that Annette should leave her immediately, and the dampness of it chilled her with more than fear. She begged Katerina, the servant of the castle, to bring some wood and light a fire. Aye, lady, it's many years since a fire was lighted here, 
said Katerina. You need not tell us that, good woman, said Annette. Every room in this castle feels like a well. I wonder how you contrive to live here. For my part, I wish myself at Venice again. Emily waved her hand for Katerina to fetch the wood. I wonder, ma'am, why they call this the double chamber, said Annette, while Emily surveyed it in silence and saw that it was lofty and spacious, like the others she had seen, and, like many of them, too, its walls lined with dark larch wood. The bed and other furniture was very ancient, and had an air of gloomy grandeur, like all she had seen in the castle. One of the high casements, which she opened, overlooked a rampart, but the view beyond was hid in darkness. In the presence of Annette, Emily tried to support her spirits and to restrain the tears which every now and then came to her eyes. She wished much to inquire when Count Morano was expected at the castle, but an unwillingness to ask unnecessary questions and to mention family concerns to a servant withheld her. Meanwhile, Annette's thoughts were engaged upon another subject. She dearly loved the marvelous, and had heard of a circumstance connected with the castle that highly gratified this taste. Having been enjoined not to mention it, her inclination to tell it was so strong that she was every instant on the point of speaking what she had heard. Such a strange circumstance, too and to be obliged to conceal it was a severe punishment. But she knew that Montigny might impose one much severer, and she feared to incur it by offending him. Katerina now brought the wood, and its bright blaze dispelled, for a while, the gloom of the chamber. She told Annette that her lady had inquired for her, and Emily was once again left to her own sad reflections. Her heart was not yet hardened against the stern manners of Montigny, and she was nearly as much shocked now as she had been when she first witnessed them. The tenderness and affection to which she had been accustomed till she lost her parents had made her particularly sensible to any degree of unkindness, and such a reverse as this no apprehension had prepared her to support. To call off her attention from subjects that pressed heavily on her spirits, she rose and again examined her room and its furniture. As she walked round it, she passed a door that was not quite shut, and, perceiving that it was not the one through which she had entered, she brought the light forward to discover whither it led. She opened it, and, going forward, she had nearly fallen down a steep, narrow staircase that wound from it between two stone walls. She wished to know to what it led, and was the more anxious since it communicated so immediately with her apartment. 
but in the present state of her spirits, she wanted courage to venture into the darkness alone. Closing the door, therefore, she endeavored to fasten it, but upon further examination perceived that it had no bolts on the chamber side, though it had two on the other. By placing a heavy chair against it, she in some measure remedied the defect. Yet she was still alarmed at the thought of sleeping in this remote room alone, with a door opening she knew not whither, and which could not be perfectly fastened on the inside. Sometimes she wished to entreat of Madame Montigny that Annette might have leave to remain with her all night, but was deterred by an apprehension of betraying what would be thought childish fears, and by an unwillingness to increase the apt terrors of Annette. Her gloomy reflections were, soon after, interrupted by a footstep in the corridor, and she was glad to see Annette enter with some supper sent by Madame Montigny. Having a table near the fire, she made the good girl sit down and sup with her, and when their little repast was over, Annette, encouraged by her kindness and stirring the wood into a blaze, drew her chair upon the hearth nearer to Emily and said, Did you ever hear, Mademoiselle, of the strange incident that made Signor Lord of this castle? What wonderful story have you now to tell, said Emily, concealing the curiosity occasioned by the mysterious hint she had formerly heard on that subject. I have heard all about it, Mademoiselle said Annette, looking round the chamber and drawing closer to Emily. Vendetto told it me as we traveled together, says he. Annette, you don't know about this castle here that we are going to? No, says I, Mr. Vendetto. Pray, what do you know? But, Mademoiselle, you can keep a secret, or I would not tell it you for the world, for I promise never to tell, and they say that the Signor does not like to have it talked of. If you promise to keep this a secret, said Emily, you do right not to mention it. Annette paused a moment and then said, Oh, but to you, mademoiselle, to you I may tell it safely, I know. Emily smiled. I certainly shall keep it as faithful as yourself, Annette. Annette replied very gravely, that would do, and proceeded, This castle, you must know, mademoiselle, is very old and very strong, and has stood out many sieges, as they say. Now it was not Signor Montigny's always, nor his father's, no, but by some law or other, it was to come to the Signor if the lady died unmarried. What lady? said Emily. I am not come to that yet, replied Annette. It is the lady I am going to tell you about, Mademoiselle. But, as I was saying, this lady lived in the castle, and had everything very grand about her, as you may suppose, Mademoiselle. The Signor used often to come to see her, and was in love with her, and offered to marry her. 
for, though he was somehow related, that did not signify. But she was in love with somebody else, and would not have him, which made him very angry, as they say. And you know, mademoiselle, what an ill-looking gentleman he is when he is angry. Perhaps she saw him in a passion, and therefore would not have him. But, as I was saying, she was very melancholy and unhappy, and all that, for a long while. And, holy virgin, what noise is that? Did you not hear a sound, mademoiselle? It was only the wind, said Emily. But do come to the end of your story. As I was saying, oh, where was I? As I was saying, she was very melancholy and unhappy a long while, and used to walk upon the terrace, there, under the windows, by herself, and cry so. It would have done your heart good to hear her. That is, I don't mean good, but it would have made you cry too, as they tell me. Well, but, Annette, do tell me the substance of your tale. All in good time, ma'am. All this I heard before at Venice, but what is to come I never heard till today. This happened a great many years ago, when Signor Montigny was quite a young man. The lady, they called her Signora Laurentini, was very handsome, but she used to be in great passions too, sometimes as well as the Signor. Finding he could not make her listen to him, what does he do but leave the castle and never comes near it for a long time? But it was all one to her. She was just as unhappy whether he was here or not. Till one evening, Holy St. Peter, Mademoiselle, cried Annette. Look at that lamp. See how blue it burns. She looked fearfully round the chamber. Ridiculous girl, said Emily. Why will you indulge those fancies? Pray let me hear the end of your story. I am weary. Annette still kept her eyes on the lamp and proceeded in a lower voice. It was one evening, they say, at the latter end of the year. It might have been about the middle of September, I suppose, or the beginning of October. Nay, for that matter, it might be November. For that, too, is the latter end of the year. But I cannot say for certain, because they did not tell me for certain themselves. However, it was at the latter end of the year, this grand lady walked out of the castle into the woods below, as she had often done before, all alone, only her maid was with her. The wind blew cold, and strewed the leaves about and whistled dismally among those great old chestnut trees that we passed, Mademoiselle, as we came to the castle. For Benedetto shooed me the trees as he was talking. The wind blew cold, and her woman would have persuaded her to return, but all would not do, for she was fond of walking in the woods. At evening time, and if the leaves were falling about her, so much the better. Well, they saw her go down among the woods, but night came, and she did not return. Ten o'clock, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock came, and no lady. While the servants thought to be sure some accident had befallen her, and they went out to seek her. 
They searched all night long, but could not find her, or any trace of her. And, from that day to this, madame, she has never been heard of. Is this true, Annette? said Emily, in much surprise. True, ma'am, said Annette, with a look of horror. Yes, it is true indeed. They do say, she added, lowering her voice. They do say that the Signora has been seen several times since, walking in the woods and about the castle in the night. Several of the old servants, who remained here some time after, declared they saw her, and since then, she has been seen by some of the vassals, who have happened to be in the castle at night. Carlo, the old steward, could tell of such things, they say, if he would. How contradictory is this, Annette, said Emily. You say that nothing has been since known of her, and yet she has been seen. But all this was told me for a great secret, rejoined Annette, without noticing the remark. And I am sure, ma'am, you would not hurt either me or Benetto so much as to go and tell it again. Emily remained silent, and Annette repeated her last sentence. You have nothing to fear from my indiscretion, replied Emily, and let me advise you, my good Annette, be discreet yourself, and never mention what you have just told me to any other person. Signor Mondini, as you say, may be angry if he hears of it. But what inquiries were made concerning the lady? Oh, a great deal indeed, mademoiselle, for the Signor laid claim to the castle directly, as being the next heir, and they said, that is, the judges or the senators or somebody of that sort said, he could not take possession of it till so many years were gone by, and then, if, after all, the lady could not be found, why she would be as good as dead, and the castle would be his own. And so it is his own. But the story went round, and many strange reports were spread, so very strange, mademoiselle that I shall not tell them. That is stranger still, Annette, said Emily, smiling, and rousing herself from her reverie. But when Signora Laurentini was afterwards seen in the castle, did nobody speak to her? Speak, speak to her, cried Annette, with a look of terror. No, to be sure. And why not, enjoyed Emily, willing to hear further. Holy Mother, speak to a spirit. But what reason had they to conclude it was a spirit, unless they had approached and spoken to it? Oh, Mademoiselle, I cannot tell. How can you ask such shocking questions? But nobody ever saw it come in or go out of the castle, and it was in one place now, and then the next minute in quite another part of the castle, and then it never spoke, and if it was alive, what should it do in the castle if it never spoke? Several parts of the castle have never been gone into since, they say, for that very reason. What, because it never spoke, said Emily, trying to laugh away the fears that began to steal upon her. No, mademoiselle, no, replied Annette, rather angrily, but because something has been seen there. They say, too, there is an old chapel adjoining the west side of the castle, where... 
any time at midnight, you may hear such groans. It makes one shudder to think of them, and strange sights have been seen there. Prithee, Annette, no more of these silly tales, said Emily. Silly tales, mademoiselle? Oh, but I will tell you one story about this, if you please, that Katerina told me. It was one cold winter's night that Katerina, she often came to the castle then, she says, to keep old Carlo and his wife company, and so he recommended her afterwards to the Signor, and she has lived here ever since. Katerina was sitting with them in the little hall, says Carlo. I wish we had some of those figs to roast that lie in the store closet, but it is a long way off, and I am loath to fetch them. Do, Katerina, says he, for you are young and nimble. Do bring us some. The fire is in nice trim for roasting them. They lie, says he, in such a corner of the storeroom, at the end of the north gallery. Here, take the lamp, says he, and mind as you go up this great staircase that the wind through the roof does not blow it out. And so with that, Katerina took the lamp. Hush, mademoiselle, I surely heard a noise. Emily, who Annette had now infected with her own terrors, listened attentively, but everything was still, and Annette proceeded. Katerina went to the north gallery, that is, the wide gallery we passed, ma'am, before we came to the corridor here. As she went with the lamp in her hand, thinking of nothing at all, There, again, cried Annette suddenly. I heard it again. It was not fancy, mademoiselle. Hush, said Emily, trembling. They listened, and, continuing to sit quite still, Emily heard a low knocking against the wall. It came repeatedly. Annette then screamed loudly, and the chamber door slowly opened. It was Katerina come to tell Annette that her lady wanted her. Emily, though she now perceived who it was, could not immediately overcome her terror. While Annette, half laughing, half crying, scolded Katerina heartily for thus alarming them, and was also terrified, lest what she had told had been overheard. Emily, whose mind was deeply impressed by the chief circumstance of Annette's relation, was unwilling to be left alone in the present state of her spirits. But to avoid offending Madame Montigny and betraying her own weakness, she struggled to overcome the illusions of fear and dismissed Annette for the night. When she was alone, her thoughts recurred to the strange history of Signora Laurentini and then to her own strange situation in the wild and solitary mountains of a foreign country, in the castle and the power of a man, to whom, only a few preceding months, she was an entire stranger, who had already exercised and usurped authority over her, and whose character she now regarded with a degree of terror, apparently justified by the fears of others. She knew that he had apparently invention equal to the conception and talents to the execution of any project, 
and she greatly feared he had a heart too void of feeling to oppose the perpetration of whatever his interest might suggest. She had long observed the unhappiness of Madame Montigny, and had often been witness to the stern and contemptuous behavior she received from her husband. To these circumstances, which conspired to give her just cause for alarm, were now added those thousand nameless terrors which exist only in active imaginations and which set reason and examination equally at defiance. Emily remembered all that Valancourt had told her on the eve of her departure from Languedoc, respecting Montigny and all he had said to dissuade her from venturing on the journey. His fears had often since appeared to her prophetic. Now they seemed confirmed. Her heart, as it gave her back the image of Valancourt, mourned in vain regret. But reason soon came with a consolation which, though feeble at first, acquired vigor from reflection. She considered that, whatever might be her sufferings, she had withheld from involving him in misfortune, and that, whatever her future sorrows could be, she was, at least, free from self-reproach. Her melancholy was assisted by the hollow sighings of the wind along the corridor and round the castle. The cheerful blaze of the wood had long been extinguished, and she sat with her eyes fixed on the dying embers, till a loud gust that swept through the corridor and shook the doors and casements alarmed her, for its violence had moved the chair she had placed as a fastening, and the door leading to the private staircase stood half open. Her curiosity and her fears were again awakened. She took the lamp to the top of the steps and stood hesitating whether to go down. But again the profound stillness and the gloom of the place awed her, and determining to inquire further when daylight might assist the search, she closed the door and placed against it a stronger guard. She now retired to her bed, leaving the lamp burning on the table, but its gloomy light, instead of dispelling her fear, assisted it, for by its uncertain rays, she almost fancied she saw shapes flit past her curtains and glide into the remote obscurity of her chamber. The castle clock struck one before she closed her eyes to sleep. End of Volume 2, Chapter 5, Part B The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 2, Chapter 6, Part 1 of 3 I think it is the weakness of mine eyes that shapes this monstrous operation. It comes upon me. Julius Caesar. Daylight dispelled from Emily's mind the glooms of superstition, but not those of apprehension. The Count Morano was the first image that occurred to her waking thoughts, and then came a train of anticipated evils which she could neither conquer nor avoid. She rose 
and to relieve her mind from the busy ideas that tormented it, compelled herself to notice external objects. From her casement, she looked out upon the wild grandeur of the scene, closed nearly on all sides by alpine steeps, whose tops, peering over each other, faded from the eye in misty hues, while the promontories below were dark with woods that swept down to their base and stretched along the narrow valleys. The rich pomp of these woods was particularly delightful to Emily, as she viewed with astonishment the fortifications of the castle spreading along a vast extent of rock, and now partly in decay, the grandeur of the ramparts below, and the towers and battlements and various features of the fabric above. From these her sight wandered over the cliffs and woods into the valley, along which foamed a broad and rapid stream, seen falling among the crags of an opposite mountain, now flashing in the sunbeams, and now shadowed by overarching pines, till it was entirely concealed by the thick foliage. Again it burst from beneath this darkness in one broad sheet of foam, and fell thundering into the vale. Nearer, towards the west, opened the mountain vista, which Emily had viewed with such sublime emotion on her approach to the castle. A thin, dusky vapor that rose from the valley overspread its features with a sweet obscurity. As this ascended and caught the sunbeams, it kindled into a crimson tint and touched with exquisite beauty the woods and cliffs over which it passed to the summit of the mountains. Then, as the veil drew up, it was delightful to watch the gleaming objects that progressively disclosed themselves in the valley. The green turf, dark woods, little rocky recesses, a few peasants' huts, the foaming stream, the herd of cattle, and various images of pastoral beauty. Then the pine forest brightened, and then the broad breast of the mountains, till, at length, the mist settled round their summit, touching them with a ruddy glow. The features of the vista now appeared distinctly, and the broad, deep shadows that fell from the lower cliffs gave strong effect to the streaming splendor above, while the mountains, gradually sinking in the perspective, appeared to shelve into the Adriatic Sea, for such Emily imagined to be the gleam of bluish light that terminated the view. Thus she endeavored to amuse her fancy, and was not unsuccessful. The breezy freshness of the morning, too, revived her. She raised her thoughts in prayer, which she felt always most disposed to do when viewing the sublimity of nature, and her mind recovered its strength. When she turned to the casement, her eyes glanced upon the door she had so carefully guarded on the preceding night, and she now determined to examine whither it led. But, on advancing to remove the chairs, she perceived that they were already moved a little away. Her surprise cannot be easily imagined when, in the next minute, she perceived that the door was fastened. She felt as if she had seen an apparition. The door of the corridor was locked as she had left it, but this door, which could be secured only on the outside, must have been bolted during the night. She became seriously uneasy at the thought of sleeping again in a chamber thus liable to intrusion, so remote, too, as it was from the family, and she determined to mention the circumstance to Madame Montoni 
and to request a change. After some perplexity, she found her way into the great hall, and to the room which she had left, on the preceding night, where breakfast was spread, and her aunt was alone, for Montoni had been walking over the environs of the castle, examining the condition of its fortifications, and talking for some time with Carlo. Emily observed that her aunt had been weeping, and her heart softened towards her, with an affection that showed itself in her manner, rather than in words, while she carefully avoided the appearance of having noticed that she was unhappy. She seized the opportunity of Montoni's absence to mention the circumstance of the door, and to request that she might be allowed another apartment, and to inquire again concerning the occasion of their sudden journey. On the first subject, her aunt referred her to Montoni, positively refusing to interfere in the affair. On the last, she professed utter ignorance. Emily, then, with a wish of making her aunt more reconciled to her situation, praised the grandeur of the castle and the surrounding scenery, and endeavored to soften every unpleasing circumstance attending it. But, though misfortune had somewhat conquered the aspiration of Madame Montoni's temper, and by increasing her cares for herself, had taught her to feel in some degree for others, the capricious rule of love, which a nature had planted and habit had nourished in her heart, was not subdued. She could not now deny herself the gratification of tyrannizing over the innocent and helpless Emily, by attempting to ridicule the taste she could not feel. Her satirical discourse was, however, interrupted by the entrance of Montoni, and her countenance immediately assumed a mingled expression of fear and resentment, while he seated himself at the breakfast table, as if unconscious of there being any person but himself in the room. Emily, as she observed him in silence, saw that his countenance was darker and sterner than usual. Oh, could I know, said she to herself, what passes in that mind? Could I know the thoughts that are known there? I should no longer be condemned to this torturing suspense. The breakfast passed in silence, till Emily ventured to request that another apartment might be allotted to her, and related the circumstance which made her wish it. I have no time to attend to these idle whims, said Montoni. That chamber was prepared for you, and you must rest contented with it. It is not probable that any person would take the trouble of going to that remote staircase for the purpose of fastening a door. If it was not fastened when you entered the chamber, the wind, perhaps, shook the door and made the bolt slide. But I know not why I should undertake to account for so trifling an occurrence. This explanation was by no means satisfactory to Emily, who had observed that the bolts were rusted, and consequently could not be thus easily moved, but she forbore to say so, and repeated her request. If you will not release yourself from the slavery of these fears, said Montoni sternly, at least forbear to torment others by the mention of them. Conquer such whims, and endeavor to strengthen your mind. No existence is more contemptible than that which is embittered by fear. As he said this, his eye glanced upon Madame Montoni, who colored highly, was still silent. Emily, wounded and disappointed, thought her fears were, in this instance, too reasonable to deserve ridicule. 
but perceiving that, however, they might oppress her, she must endure them, she tried to withdraw her attention from the subject. Carlo soon after entered with some fruit. Your Excellenza is tired after your long ramble, said he, as he sat the fruit upon the table. But you have more to see after breakfast. There is a place in the vaulted passage leading to... Montoni frowned upon him and waved his hand for him to leave the room. Carlo stopped, looked down, and then added, as he advanced to the breakfast table and took up the basket of fruit, I made bold, Your Excellency, to bring some cherries here for my honored lady and my young mistress. Will Your Ladyship taste them, madam? said Carlo, presenting the basket. They are very fine ones, though I gathered them myself, and from an old tree that catches all the south sun. They are as big as plums, Your Ladyship. Very well, Carlo, said Madame Montoni. I am obliged to you, and the young signora, too. She may like some of them, rejoined Carlo, turning with the basket to Emily. It will do me good to see her eat some. Thank you, Carlo, said Emily, taking some cherries and smiling kindly. Come, come, said Montoni impatiently. Enough of this. Leave the room, but be in waiting. I shall want you presently. Carlo obeyed, and Montoni, soon after, went out to examine further into the state of the castle, while Emily remained with her aunt, patiently enduring her ill humor, and endeavoring with much sweetness to soothe her affliction, instead of resenting its effect. When Madame Montoni retired to her dressing room, Emily endeavored to amuse herself by a view of the castle. Through a folding door she passed from the great hall to the ramparts, which extended along the brow of the precipice, round three sides of the edifice. The fourth was guarded by the high walls of the courts and by the gateway through which she had passed on the preceding evening. The grandeur of the broad ramparts and the chaining scenery they overlooked excited her high admiration, for the extent of the terraces allowed the features of the country to be seen in such various points of view that they appeared to form new landscapes. She often paused to examine the Gothic magnificence of Udolfo, its proud irregularity, its lofty towers and battlements, its high arched casements, and its slender watchtowers perched upon the corners of turrets. Then she would lean on the wall of the terrace and, shuddering, measure with her eye the precipice below till the dark summits of the woods arrested it. Wherever she turned appeared mountain tops, forests of pine and narrow glens, opening among the Apennines and retiring from the sight into inaccessible regions. While she thus leaned, Montoni, followed by two men, appeared, ascending a winding path cut in the rock below. He stopped upon a cliff, and pointing to the ramparts, turned to his followers, and talked with much eagerness of gesticulation. Emily perceived that one of these men was Carlo. The other was in the dress of a peasant, and he alone seemed to be receiving the directions of Montoni. She withdrew from the walls and pursued her walk till she heard at a distance the sound of carriage wheels, and then the loud bell of the portal, when it instantly occurred to her that Count Morano was arrived. As she hastily passed the folding doors from the terrace towards her own apartment, several persons entered the hall by an opposite door. 
she saw them at the extremities of the arcades, and immediately retreated, but the agitation of her spirits, and the extent and duskiness of the hall, had prevented her from distinguishing the persons of the strangers. Her fears, however, had but one object, and they had called up that object to her fancy. She believed that she had seen Count Morano. When she thought that they had passed the hall, she ventured again to the door and proceeded unobserved to her room, where she remained, agitated with apprehensions and listening to every distant sound. At length, hearing voices on the rampart, she hastened to her window and observed Montoni with Signor Cavigni, walking below, conversing earnestly, and often stopping and turning towards each other, at which time their discourse seemed to be uncommonly interesting. Of the several persons who had appeared in the hall, here was Cavigni alone, but Emily's alarm was soon heightened by the steps of someone in the corridor, who, she apprehended, brought a message from the Count. In the next moment, Annette appeared. Ah, mademoiselle, said she, here is the Signor Cavigni arrived. I am sure I rejoice to see a Christian person in this place. And then he is so good-natured, too, he always takes so much notice of me. And here is also Signor Verezzi. And who do you think besides, mademoiselle? I cannot guess, Annette. Tell me quickly. Nay, ma'am, do guess once. Well then, said Emily, with assumed composure, it is Count Morano, I suppose. Holy Virgin, cried Annette. Are you ill, mademoiselle? Are you going to faint? Let me get some water. Emily sunk into a chair. Stay, Annette, she said feebly. Do not leave me. I shall soon be better. Open the casement. The Count, you say, he has come then? Who, I, the Count? No, mademoiselle, I did not say so. He has not come then? said Emily eagerly. No, mademoiselle. Are you sure of it? Lord bless me, said Annette. You recover very suddenly, ma'am. Why, I thought you were dying just now. But the Count, are you sure has not come? Oh, yes, quite sure of that, mademoiselle. Why, I was looking out through the grate in the north turret, when the carriage drove into the courtyard, and I never expected to see such a goodly sight in this dismal old castle. But here are masters and servants, too, enough to make the place ring again. Oh, I was ready to leap through the rusty old bars for joy. Oh, who would ever have thought of seeing a Christian face in this huge, dreary house? I could have kissed the very horses that brought them. Well, Annette, well, I am better now. Yes, mademoiselle, I see you are. Oh, all the servants will lead merry lives here now. We shall have singing and dancing in the little hall, for the Signor cannot hear us there, and droll stories. Ludovico's come, ma'am. Yes, there is Ludovico come with them. You remember Ludovico, ma'am? A tall, handsome young man, Signor Cavigni's lackey who always wears his cloak with such a grace, thrown round his left arm, and his hat set on so smartly, all on one side, and... No, said Emily, who was wearied by her loquacity. What, mademoiselle, don't you remember Ludovico, who rode the Cavaliero's gondola at the last regatta and won the prize? And you used to sing such sweet verses about Orlando's, and about the black Moors, too. And Charlie, Charlie... 
Mange, yes, that was the name. All under my lattice, in the west portico, on the moonlit nights at Venice. Oh, I have listened to him. I fear to thy peril, my good Annette, said Emily, for it seems his verses have stolen thy heart. But let me advise you. If it is so, keep the secret. Never let him know it. Oh, mademoiselle, how can one keep such a secret as that? Well, Annette, I am so much better now that you may leave me. Oh, but mademoiselle, I forgot to ask, how did you sleep in this dreary old chamber last night? As well as usual. Did you hear no noises? None. Nor see anything? Nothing. Well, that is surprising. Not in the least. And now tell me, why you ask these questions? Oh, mademoiselle, I would not tell you for the world, nor all I have heard about this chamber either. It would frighten you so. If that is all, you have frightened me already, and may therefore tell me what you know without hurting your conscience. Oh, Lord, they say the room is haunted, and has been so these many years. It is by a ghost, then, who can draw bolts, said Emily, endeavoring to laugh away her apprehensions. For I left the door open last night and found it fastened this morning. Annette turned pale and said not a word. Do you know whether any of the servants fastened this door in the morning before I rose? No, ma'am, that I will be bound they did not. But I don't know. Shall I go and ask, mademoiselle? said Annette, moving hastily towards the corridor. Stay, Annette, I have another question to ask. Tell me what you have heard concerning this room and whither that staircase leads. I will go and ask it all directly, ma'am. Besides, I am sure my lady wants me. I cannot stay now, indeed, ma'am. She hurried from the room without waiting Emily's reply, whose heart, lightened by the certainty that Morano was not arrived, allowed her to smile at the superstitious terror which had seized on Annette. For though she sometimes felt its influence herself, she could smile at it, when apparent in other persons. Montoni, having refused Emily another chamber, she determined to bear with patience the evil she could not remove, and in order to make the room as comfortable as possible, unpacked her books. Her sweet delight in happier days, and her soothing resource in the hours of moderate sorrow. But there were hours when even these failed of their effect, when the genius, the taste, the enthusiasm of the sublimest writers were felt no longer. Her little library being arranged on the high chest, part of the furniture of the room, she took out her drawing utensils, and was tranquil enough to be pleased with the thought of sketching the sublime scenes beheld from her windows but she suddenly checked this pleasure, remembering how often she had soothed herself by the intention of obtaining amusement of this kind, and had been prevented by some new circumstance of misfortune. How can I suffer myself to be deluded by hope, said she, and because Count Morano is not yet arrived, feel a momentary happiness? Alas, what is it to me whether he is here today or tomorrow, if he comes at all? and that he will come, it were weakness to doubt. To withdraw her thoughts, however, from the subject of her misfortunes, she attempted to read, but her attention wandered from the page, and at length she threw aside the book and determined to explore the adjoining chambers of the castle. 
her imagination was pleased with the view of ancient grandeur, and an emotion of melancholy awe awakened all its powers as she walked through rooms, obscure and desolate, where no footsteps had passed probably for many years, and remembered the strange history of the former possessor of the edifice. This brought to her recollection the veiled picture which had attracted her curiosity on the preceding night, and she resolved to examine it. As she passed through the chambers that led to this, she found herself somewhat agitated. Its connection with the late lady of the castle and the conversation with Annette, together with the circumstance of the veil, throwing a mystery over the subject that excited a faint degree of terror. But a terror of this nature, as it occupies and expands the mind, and elevates it to high expectation, is purely sublime, and leads us, by a kind of fascination, to seek even the object from which we appear to shrink. Emily passed on with faltering steps, and having paused a moment at the door, before she attempted to open it, she then hastily entered the chamber, and went towards the picture, which appeared to be enclosed in a frame of uncommon size, that hung in a dark part of the room. She paused again, and then, with a timid hand, lifted the veil, but instantly let it fall, perceiving that what it had concealed was no picture, and before she could leave the chamber, she dropped senseless on the floor. When she recovered the recollection, the remembrance of what she had seen had nearly deprived her of it a second time. She had scarcely strength to remove from the room and regain her own and, when arrived there, waited courage to remain alone. Horror occupied her mind and excluded, for a time, all sense of past and dread of future misfortune. She seated herself near the casement, because from thence she heard voices, though distant on the terrace, and might see people pass, and these, trifling as they were, were reviving circumstances. When her spirits had recovered their tone, she considered whether she should mention what she had seen to Madame Montoni, and various important motives urged her to do so, among which the least was the hope of the relief which an overburdened mind finds in speaking of the subject of its interest. But she was aware of the terrible consequences which such a communication might lead to, and dreading the indiscretion of her aunt, at length endeavored to arm herself with resolution to observe a profound silence on the subject. Montoni and Varese were soon after passed under the casement, speaking cheerfully, and their voices revived her. Presently the signors Bertolini and Cavigni joined the party on the terrace, and Emily, supposing that Madame Montoni was then alone, went to seek her. For the solitude of her chamber, and its proximity to that which she had received so severe a shock, again affected her spirit. She found her aunt in her dressing room, preparing for dinner. Emily's pale and affrighted countenance alarmed even Madame Montoni, but she had sufficient strength of mind to be silent on the subject that still made her shudder, and which was ready to burst from her lips. In her aunt's apartment she remained till they both descended to dinner. There she met the gentleman lately arrived, who had a kind of busy seriousness in their look, which was somewhat unusual with them while their thoughts seemed too much occupied by some deep interest to suffer them to bestow much attention either on Emily or Madame Montoni. They spoke little, and Montoni less. 
Emily, as she now looked on them, shuddered. The horror of the chamber rushed on her mind. Sometimes the color faded from her cheeks, and she feared that illness should betray her emotions and compel her to leave the room. But the strength of her resolution remedied the weakness of her frame. She obliged herself to converse and even tried to look cheerful. Montoni evidently labored under some vexation, such as would probably have agitated a weaker mind or a more susceptible heart, but which appeared from the sternness of his countenance only to bend up his facilities to energy and fortitude. It was a comfortless and silent meal. The gloom of the castle seemed to have spread its contagion even over the gay countenance of Cavigny, and with this gloom was mingled a fierceness such as she had seldom seen him indicate. Count Morono was not named, and what conversation there was turned chiefly upon the wars, which at that time agitated the Italian states, the strength of the Venetian armies, and the characters of their generals. After dinner, when the servants had withdrawn, Emily learned that the cavalier who had drawn upon himself the vengeance of Orsino had since died of his wounds, and that strict search was still making for his murderer. The intelligence seemed to disturb Montoni, who mused and then inquired where Orsino had concealed himself. His guests, who all except Cavigni were ignorant, that Montoni had himself assisted him to escape from Venice, replied that he had fled in the night with such precipitation and secrecy that his most intimate companions knew not whither. Montoni blamed himself for having asked the question, for a second thought convinced him that a man of Orsino's suspicious temper was not likely to trust any of the persons present with the knowledge of his asylum. He considered himself, however, as entitled to his utmost confidence, and did not doubt that he should soon hear of him. Emily retired with Madame Montoni, soon after the cloth was withdrawn, and left the cavaliers to their secret counsels, but not before the significant frowns of Montoni had warned his wife to depart, who passed from the halls to the ramparts, and walked for some time in silence, which Emily did not interrupt, for her mind was also occupied by interests of its own. It required all her resolution to forbear communicating to Madame Montoni the terrible subject which still thrilled her every nerve with horror. And sometimes she was on the point of doing so, merely to obtain the relief of a moment. But she knew how wholly she was in the power of Montoni, and, considering that the indiscretion of her aunt might prove fatal to both of them, she compelled herself to endure a present and an inferior evil, rather than to tempt a future and a heavier one. A strange kind of presentiment frequently on this day occurred to her. It seemed as if her fate rested here, and was by some invisible means connected with this castle. Let me not accelerate it, she said to herself, for whatever I may be reserved, let me at least avoid self-reproach. As she looked on the massy walls of the edifice, her melancholy spirits represented it to be her prison, and she started as at a new suggestion when she considered how far distant she was from her native country, from her little peaceful home, and from her only friend. How remote was her hope of happiness, how feeble the expectation of again seeing him. Yet the idea of Valancourt and her confidence in his faithful love 
yet hitherto been her only solace, and she struggled hard to retain them. A few tears of agony started to her eyes, which she turned aside to conceal. While she afterwards leaned on the wall of the rampart, some peasants, at a little distance, were seen examining a breach, before which lay a heap of stones, as if to repair it, and a rusty old cannon that appeared to have fallen from its station above. Madame Montoni stopped to speak to the men, and inquired what they were going to do. To repair their fortifications, your ladyship, said one of them, a labor which she was somewhat surprised that Montoni should think necessary, particularly since he had never spoken of the castle as of a place at which he meant to reside for any considerable time. But she passed on towards the lofty arch that led from the south to the east rampart, and which adjoined the castle on one side, while on the other it supported a small watchtower that entirely commanded the deep valley below. As she approached this arch, she saw, beyond it, winding along the woody descent of a distant mountain, a long troop of horse and foot, whom she knew to be soldiers, only by the glitter of their pikes and other arms, for the distance did not allow her to discover the color of their liveries. As she gazed, the vanguard issued from the woods into the valley, but the train still continued to pour over the remote summit of the mountain in endless succession, while in front the military uniform became distinguishable, and the commanders, riding first and seeming by their gestures to direct the march of those that followed, at length approached very near to the castle. Such a spectacle in these solitary regions both surprised and alarmed up Madame Montoni, and she hastened towards some peasants, who were employed in raising bastions before the south rampart, where the rock was less abrupt than elsewhere. These men could give no satisfactory answers to her inquiries, but being roused by them, gazed in stupid astonishment upon the long cavalcade. Madame Montoni, then thinking it necessary to communicate further the object of her alarm, sent Emily to say that she wished to speak to Montoni, and Aaron, her niece, did not approve for she dreaded his frowns, which she knew this message would provoke, but she obeyed in silence. As she drew near the apartment in which he sat with his guests, she heard them in earnest and loud dispute, and she passed a moment, trembling at the displeasure which her sudden interruption would occasion. In the next, their voices sunk all together. She then ventured to open the door, and while Montoni turned hastily and looked at her, without speaking she delivered her message. Tell Madame Montoni I am engaged, said he. End of Volume 2, Chapter 6, Part 1 of 3 The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 2, Chapter 6, Part 2 of 3 Emily then thought it proper to mention the subject of her alarm. Montoni and his companions rose instantly and went to the windows, but, these not affording them a view of the troops, they at length proceeded to the ramparts, where Cavini conjectured it to be a legion of condottieri on their march towards Modena. One part of the cavalcade now extended along the valley, and another wound among the mountains towards the north, while some troops still lingered on the woody precipices where the first had appeared, 
so that the great length of the procession seemed to include a whole army. While Montoni and his family watched its progress, they heard the sound of trumpets and the clash of cymbals in the vale, and then others answering from the heights. Emily listened with emotion to the shrill blast that woke the echoes of the mountains, and Montoni explained the signals, which he appeared to be well acquainted, and which meant nothing hostile. The uniforms of the troops, and the kinds of arms they bore, confirmed to him the conjecture of Cavigni, and he had the satisfaction to see them pass by without even stopping to gaze upon his castle. He did not, however, leave the rampart till the bases of the mountains had shut them from his view, and the last murmur of the trumpet floated away on the wind. Cavigni and Verezzi were inspirited by this spectacle, which seemed to have roused all the fire of their temper. Montoni turned into the castle in thoughtful silence. Emily's mind had not yet sufficiently recovered from its late shock to endure the loneliness of her chamber, and she remained upon the ramparts, for Madame Montoni had not invited her to her dressing room, whither she had gone evidently in loath spirits, and Emily, from her late experience, had lost all wish to explore the gloomy and mysterious recesses of the castle. The ramparts, therefore, were almost her only retreat, and here she lingered till the grey haze of evening was again spread over the scene. The cavalier supped by themselves, and Madame Montoni remained in her apartment, whither Emily went before she retired to her own. She found her aunt weeping and in much agitation. The tenderness of Emily was naturally so soothing that it seldom failed to give comfort to the drooping heart. But Madame Montoni's was torn, and the softest accents of Emily's voice were lost upon it. With her usual delicacy, she did not appear to observe her aunt's distress, but it gave an involuntary gentleness to her manners, and an air of solicitude to her countenance, which Madame Montoni was vexed to perceive, who seemed to feel the pity of her niece to be an insult to her pride, and dismissed her as soon as she properly could. Emily did not venture to mention again the reluctance she felt to her gloomy chamber, but she requested that Annette might be permitted to remain with her till she retired to rest, and the request was somewhat reluctantly granted. Annette, however, was now with the servants, and Emily withdrew alone. With light and hasty steps she passed through the long galleries, while the feeble glimmer of the lamp she carried only showed the gloom around her, and the passing air threatened to extinguish it. The lonely silence that reigned in this part of the castle awed her. Now and then, indeed, she heard a faint peal of laughter rise from a remote part of the edifice where the servants were assembled, but it was soon lost, and a kind of breathless stillness remained. As she passed the suite of rooms which she had visited in the morning, her eyes glanced fearfully on the door and she almost fancied she heard murmuring sounds within, but she paused not a moment to inquire. Having reached her own apartment, where no blazing wood on the hearth dissipated the gloom, she sat down with a book to enliven her intention till Annette should come, and a fire could be kindled. She continued to read till her light was nearly expired, but Annette did not appear and the solitude and obscurity of her chamber again affected her spirits, 
the more, because of its nearness to the scene of horror that she had witnessed in the morning. Gloomy and fantastic images came to her mind. She looked fearfully toward the door of the staircase, and then, examining whether it was still fastened, found that it was so. Unable to conquer the uneasiness she felt at the prospect of sleeping again in this remote and insecure apartment, which some person seemed to have entered during the preceding night, her impatience to see Annette, whom she had bidden to inquire concerning this circumstance, became extremely painful. She wished also to question her as to the object which had excited so much horror in her own mind, and which Annette on the preceding evening had appeared to be in part acquainted with, though her words were very remote from the truth, and it appeared plainly to Emily that the girl was purposely misled by a false report. Above all, she was surprised that the door of the chamber which contained it should be left unguarded. Such an instance of negligence almost surpassed belief. But her light was now expiring. The faint flashes it threw upon the walls called up all the terrors of fancy, and she rose to find her way to the habitable part of the castle before it was quite extinguished. As she opened the chamber door, she heard it remote voices, and, soon after, saw a light issue upon the farther end of the corridor, which Annette and another servant approached. I'm glad you are come, said Emily. What has detained you so long? Pray, light me a fire immediately. My lady wanted me, mademoiselle, replied Annette in some confusion. I will go and get the wood. No, said Katerina. That is my business, and left the room instantly, while Annette would have followed, but being called back, she began to talk very loud and laughed, and seemed afraid to trust a pause of silence. Katarina soon returned with the wood, and then, when the cheerful blaze once more animated the room, and the servant had withdrawn, Emily asked Annette whether she had made the inquiry she bade her. Yes, mademoiselle, said Annette, but not a soul knows anything about the matter. And old Carlo, I watched him well, for they say he knows strange things. Old Carlo looked so as I don't know how to tell, and he asked me again and again if I was sure the door was ever unfastened. Lord, says I, am I sure I am alive? And as for me, ma'am, I am astounded, as one may say, and would no more sleep in this chamber than I would on the great cannon at the end of the east rampart. And what objection have you to that cannon, more than to any of the rest? said Emily, smiling. The best would be rather a hard bet. Yes, mademoiselle, any of them would be hard enough for that matter. But they do say that something has been seen in the dead of night, standing beside the great cannon as if to guard it. Well, my good Annette, the people who tell such stories are happy in having you for an auditor, for I perceive you believe them all. Dear Mademoiselle, I will show you the very cannon. You can see it from these windows. Well, said Emily, but that does not prove that an apparition guards it. What? Not if I show you the very cannon? Dear ma'am, you will believe nothing. Nothing, perhaps, upon this subject, but what I see, said Emily. Well, ma'am, you shall see it, if you will only step this way to the casement. Emily could not forbear laughing, and Annette looked surprised. 
Perceiving her extreme aptitude to credit the marvellous, Emily forbore to mention the subject she had intended, lest it should overcome her with idle terrors, and she began to speak on a lively topic, the regattas of Venice. Ay, ma'amselle, those rowing matches, said Annette, and the fine moonlit nights are all that are worth seeing in Venice. To be sure, the moon is brighter than any I ever saw, and then to hear such sweet music too, as Ludovico has often and often sung under the lattice by the west portico. Mademoiselle, it was Ludovico that told me about the picture which you wanted so to look at last night, and what picture, said Emily, wishing Annette to explain herself. Oh, that terrible picture with the black veil over it. You never saw it then, said Emily? Who, I? No, Mademoiselle, I never did. But this morning, continued Annette, lowering her voice and looking round the room, this morning, as it was broad daylight, do you know, ma'am, I took a strange fancy to see it. And as I heard such odd hints about it, and I got so far as the door, and should have opened it, if it had not been locked. Emily, endeavoring to conceal the emotion this circumstance occasioned, inquired at what hour she went to the chamber and found that it was soon after herself had been there. She also asked further questions and the answers convinced her that Annette and probably her informer were ignorant of the terrible truth, though in Annette's account something very like the truth now and then mingled with the falsehood. Emily now began to fear that her visit to the chamber had been observed since the door had been closed so immediately after her departure, and dreaded lest this should draw upon her the vengeance of Montoni. Her anxiety also was excited to know whence, and for what purpose, the delusive report which had been imposed upon Annette had originated, since Montoni could only have wished for silence and secrecy, but she felt that the subject was too terrible for this lonely hour and she compelled herself to leave it, to converse with Annette, whose chat, simple as it was, she preferred to the stillness of total solitude. Thus they sat till near midnight, but not without many hints from Annette that she wished to go. The embers were now nearly burnt out, and Emily heard, at a distance, the thundering sound of the hall doors as they were shut for the night. She, therefore, prepared for rest, but was still unwilling that Annette should leave her. At this instant, the great bell of the portal sounded. They listened in fearful expectation when, after a long pause of silence, it sounded again. Soon after, they heard the noise of carriage wheels in the courtyard. Emily sunk almost lifeless in her chair. It is the Count, said she. What, at this time of night, ma'am, said Annette. No, my dear lady, but for that matter, it is a strange time of night for anybody to come. Nay, prithee, good Annette, stay not talking, said Emily in a voice of agony. Go, prithee, go and see who it is. Annette left the room and carried with her the light, leaving Emily in darkness, which a few moments before would have terrified her in this room, but was now scarcely observed by her. She listened and waited in breathless expectation, and heard distant noises, but Annette did not return. Her patience at length exhausted, she tried to find her way to the corridor, but it was long before she could touch the door of the chamber, and when she opened it, the total darkness made her fear to proceed. Voices were now heard, and Emily even thought she distinguished those of Count Morano and Montoni. 
Soon after, she heard steps approaching, and then a ray of light streamed through the darkness, and Annette appeared, whom Emily went to meet. Yes, ma'amselle, said she, you are right, it is the Count, sure enough. It is he, exclaimed Emily, lifting her eyes towards heaven and supporting herself by Annette's arm. Good Lord, my dear lady, don't be in such a fluster and look so pale. We shall soon hear more. We shall indeed, said Emily, moving as fast as she was able toward her apartment. I am not well. Give me air. Annette opened a casement and brought water. The faintness soon left Emily, but she desired Annette would not go till she heard from Montoni. Dear Mademoiselle, he surely will not disturb you at this time of night. Why, he must think you are asleep. Stay with me till I am so, then, said Emily, who felt temporary relief from this suggestion, which appeared probable enough, though her fears had prevented its occurring to her. Annette, with secret reluctance, consented to stay, and Emily was now composed enough to ask her some questions, among others, whether she had seen the Count. Yes, ma'am, I saw him alight, for I went from hence to the grate in the north turret that overlooks the inner courtyard, you know. There I saw the Count's carriage and the Count in it, waiting at the great door, for the porter was just gone to bed, with several men on horseback, all by the light of the torches they carried. Emily was compelled to smile. When the door was opened, the Count said something that I could not make out, and then got out, and another gentleman with him. I thought, to be sure, the Signor was gone to bed, and I hastened away to my lady's dressing room to see what I could hear. But in the way I met Ludovico, and he told me that the Signor was up, counselling with his master and the other Signors in the room at the end of the North Gallery. And Ludovico held up his finger, laid it on his lips as much to say, there's more going on than you think of, Annette, but you must hold your tongue. And so I did hold my tongue, Mademoiselle, and came away to tell you directly. Emily inquired who the Cavaliere was that accompanied the Count, and how Montoni received them, but Annette could not inform her. Ludovico, she added, had just been to call Signor Montoni's valet, that he might tell him they had arrived when I met him. Emily sat musing for some time, and then her anxiety was so much increased that she desired Annette would go to the servants' hall, where it was possible she might hear something of the Count's intention respecting his stay at the castle. Yes, ma'am, said Annette with readiness, but how am I to find the way if I leave the lamp with you? Emily said she would light her, and they immediately quitted the chamber. When they had reached the top of the great staircase, Emily recollected that she might be seen by the Count, and, to avoid the great hall, Annette conducted her through some private passages to a back staircase, which led directly to that of the servants. As she returned towards her chamber, Emily began to fear that she might again lose herself in the intricacies of the castle, and again be shocked by some mysterious spectacle. And though she was already perplexed by the numerous turnings, she feared to open one of the many doors that offered. While she stepped thoughtfully along, she fancied that she heard a low moaning at no great distance, and having paused a moment, she heard it again distinctly. Several doors appeared on the right hand of the passage. She advanced and listened. 
When she came to the second, she heard a voice, apparently in complaint, within, to which she continued to listen, afraid to open the door and unwilling to leave it. Convulsive sobs followed, and then the piercing accents of an agonizing spirit burst forth. Emily stood appalled and looked through the gloom that surrounded her in fearful expectation. The lamentations continued. Pity now began to subdue terror. It was possible she might administer comfort to the sufferer, at least, by expressing sympathy, and she laid her hand on the door. While she hesitated, she thought she knew this voice, disguised as it was by tones of grief. Having, therefore, set down the lamp in the passage, she gently opened the door, within which all was dark except that from an inner apartment a partial light appeared, and she stepped softly on. Before she reached it, the appearance of Madame Montoni, leaning on her dresser table, weeping, and with a handkerchief held to her eyes, struck her, and she paused. Some person was seated in a chair by the fire, but who it was she could not distinguish. He spoke now and then in a low voice that did not allow Emily to hear what was uttered, but she thought that Madame Montoni at those times wept the more who was too much occupied by her own distress to observe Emily, while the latter, though anxious to know what occasioned this, and who was the person admitted at so late an hour to her aunt's dressing room, forbore to add to her sufferings by surprising her, or to take advantage of her situation by listening to a private discourse. She, therefore, stepped softly back, and after some further difficulty found the way to her own chamber, where nearer interests at length excluded the surprise and concern she felt respecting Madame Montoni. Annette, however, returned without satisfactory intelligence, for the servants among whom she had been were either entirely ignorant or affected to be so concerning the Count's intended stay at the castle. They could talk only of the steep and broken road they had just passed and of the numerous dangers they had escaped, and expressed wonder how their lord could choose to encounter all these in the darkness of night, for they scarcely allowed that the torches had served for any other purpose but that of showing the dreariness of the mountains. Annette, finding she could gain no more information, left them, making noisy petitions for more wood on the fire and more supper on the table. And now, Mademoiselle, added she, I am so sleepy. I am sure, if you was so sleepy, you would not desire me to sit up with you. Emily, indeed, began to think it was cruel to wish it. She had also waited so long without receiving a summons from Montoni, that it appeared he did not mean to disturb her at this late hour, and she determined to dismiss Annette. But, when she again looked round her gloomy chamber and recollected certain circumstances, fear seized her spirits, and she hesitated. And yet it were cruel of me to ask you to stay till I am asleep, Annette, said she, for I fear it will be very long before I forget myself in sleep. I dare say it will be very long, mademoiselle, said Annette. But before you go, rejoined Emily, let me ask you, had Signor Mantoni left? Count Morano when you quitted the hall? Oh no, ma'am. They were alone together. Have you been in my aunt's dressing room since you left me? No, ma'amselle. I called at the door as I passed, but it was fastened, so I thought my lady was gone to bed. 
"Who, then, was with your lady just now?" said Emily, forgetting in surprise her usual prudence. "Nobody, I believe, madam," replied Annette, "nobody has been with her, I believe, since you left." Emily took no further notice of the subject, and, after some struggle with imaginary fears, her good nature prevailed over them so far, that she dismissed Annette for the night. She then sat, musing upon her own circumstances, and those of Madame Montoni, till her eye rested on the miniature picture, which she had found, after her father's death, among the papers he had enjoined her to destroy. It was open upon the table before her, among some loose drawings, having with them been taken out of a little box by Emily some hours before. The sight of it called up many interesting reflections, but the melancholy sweetness of the countenance soothed the emotions which these had occasioned. It was the same style of countenance as that of her late father, and, while she gazed on it with fondness on this account, she even fancied a resemblance in the features. But this tranquillity was suddenly interrupted when she recollected the words in the manuscript that had been found with the picture, and which had formerly occasioned her so much doubt and horror. At length she roused herself from the deep reverie into which this remembrance had thrown her. But when she rose to undress, the silence and solitude to which she was left at this midnight hour, for not even a distant sound was now heard, conspired with the impression the subject she had been considering had given to her mind to appall her. Annette's hints, too, concerning this chamber, simple as they were, had not failed to affect her, since they followed a circumstance of peculiar horror which she herself had witnessed, and since the scene of this was a chamber nearly adjoining her own. The door of the staircase was, perhaps, a subject of more reasonable alarm, and she now began to apprehend, such was the aptitude of her fears, that this staircase had some private communication with the apartment, which she shuddered even to remember. Determined not to undress, she lay down to sleep in her clothes, with her late father's dog, the faithful Manchon, at the foot of the bed, whom she considered as a kind of guard. Thus circumstanced, she tried to banish reflection, but her busy fancy would still hover over the subjects of her interest, and she heard the clock of the castle strike two before she closed her eyes. From the disturbed slumber into which she then sunk, she was soon awakened by a noise which seemed to arise within her chamber, but the silence that prevailed as she fearfully listened inclined her to believe that she had been alarmed by such sounds as sometimes occur in dreams and she laid her head again upon the pillow. A return of the noise again disturbed her. It seemed to come from that part of the room which communicated with the private staircase, and she instantly remembered the odd circumstance of the door having been fastened during the preceding night by some unknown hand. Her late alarming suspicion concerning its communication also occurred to her. Her heart became faint with terror, Half raising herself from the bed, and gently drawing aside the curtain, she looked towards the door of the staircase, but the lamp that burnt on the hearth spread so feeble a light through the apartment that the remote parts of it were lost in shadow. The noise, however, which she was convinced came from the door, continued. 
It seemed like that made by the undrawing of rusty bolts, and often ceased, and was then renewed more gently, as if the hand that occasioned it was restrained by a fear of discovery. While Emily kept her eyes fixed on the spot, she saw the door move, and then slowly open, and perceived something enter the room, but the extreme duskiness prevented her distinguishing what it was. Almost fainting with terror, she had yet sufficient command over herself to contain the shriek that was escaping from her lips, and letting the curtain drop from her hand, continued to observe in silence the motions of the mysterious form she saw. It seemed to glide along the remote obscurity of the apartment, then paused, and, as it approached the hearth, she perceived in the stronger light what appeared to be a human figure. Certain remembrances now struck upon her heart, and almost subdued the feeble remains of her spirits. She continued, however, to watch the figure, which remained for some time motionless, but then, advancing slowly towards the bed, stood silently at the feet where the curtains, being a little open, allowed her to see it. Terror, however, had now deprived her of the power of discrimination, as well as that of utterance. Having continued there a moment, the form retreated towards the hearth. When it took the lamp, held it up, surveyed the chamber for a few moments, and then again advanced towards the bed. The light at that instant awakened the dog that had slept at Emily's feet. He barked loudly, and jumping to the floor, flew at the stranger, who struck the animal smartly with a sheathed sword. And springing towards the bed, Emily discovered Count Morano. She gazed at him a moment in speechless affright, while he, throwing himself on his knee at the bedside, besought her to fear nothing, and having thrown down his sword, would have taken her hand when the facilities that terror had suspended suddenly returned and she sprung from the bed in the dress, which surely a kind of prophetic apprehension had prevented her on this night from throwing aside. Morano rose, followed her to the door through which he had entered, and caught her hand as she reached the top of the staircase, but not before she had discovered by the gleam of a lamp another man halfway down the stairs. She now screamed in despair, and believing herself given up by Montoni, saw indeed no possibility of escape. The Count, who still held her hand, led her back into the chamber. Why all this terror, said he in a tremulous voice. Hear me, Emily. I come not to alarm you. No, by heaven, I love you too well, too well for my own peace. Emily looked at him for a moment in fearful doubt. Then lead me, sir, said she. Lead me instantly. Hear me, Emily, resumed Morano. Hear me. I love and am in despair. Yes, in despair. How can I gaze upon you and know that it is perhaps for the last time without suffering all the frenzy of despair? But it shall not be so. You shall be mine in spite of Montoni and all his villainy. End of Volume 2, Chapter 6, Part 2 of 3.